At Total Wine & More, find the best gifts for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for sis or a single-barrel bourbon that dad will love. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. Be 21. Where can you find the best gifts at great low prices that everyone will love? At Total Wine & More, of course, with so many great bottles to choose from. Find something for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for your sis, sparkling wine for a coworker, or a single barrel bourbon for dad. And if you need any help, just ask one of their friendly guides for advice. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly, B21. This episode of Burnt Toast is brought to you by our friends at Panera Bread who are out to make breakfast the way it should be made, with some respect. Try their new bacon, egg, and cheese on brioche. Panera. Food as it should be. Welcome to the new season of Food 52's Burnt Toast Podcast. In this season of Food 52's Burnt Toast, we'll be exploring how food and community intersect in oft-surprising ways. We'll gain insights into the way we eat, how we cultivate our taste, and even learn to cook. And we'll do this by taking the time to speak with some of the most important people shaping food's present and future, bringing those morsels back home for you to digest whenever you're ready to listen. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. After years cooking in kitchens, I took my turn behind the lens, photographing chefs in restaurants around the world as a food-focused journalist. I've photographed many cookbooks and even written a few, most recently one all about the world of vinegar. But for the past eight years, I've also been hosting podcasts. There's storytelling to be had in chorus with many voices, learning from someone else's perspective. It satisfies in the same way a good meal does, leaving you full and nourished. You'll be hearing from me, as well as my co-producer, Jordan Werner, about how we believe food influences our lives in more ways than you would think. For episode one, we're going to start off with something a bit more on the fringe of food. Well, that's until you get hit by it. Food fights have long played an important role in food culture. There have been celebrations, strategic melees, and even border disputes, all of which we'll explore in this episode examining the psychology behind some of the most interesting of these events. Now, let the battles begin. I remember first watching the Three Stooges, eating up their vaudeville humor, which I replay quite often through supercut videos of them pieing each other. Pieing? Now what is that? A verb or a gimmick, some comic routine, turning pastry into laugh tracks? In Mel Brooks' Blazing Saddles, a chef in whites announces, Get your pies for the great pie fight! followed by a face full of pie of his own. John Belushi yells, Food fight! in Animal House, much in the same way we egg protagonists in movies like Matilda, Little Rascals, Little Darlings, and Hook, where Robin Williams plays an aged Peter Pan, and while celebrating the rediscovery of his imagination with a bountiful feast, a huge neon food fight of epic proportions blows up between him and the Lost Boys. Bangarang! These movies make us believe that food fights are whimsical and that someday we might be in the right place at the right time to partake. 
these movies made me wonder, when will my food fight happen? And how to best ready myself just in case. I did some research as to whether there were any recurring food fights that I could potentially attend. The first one I found was called La Tomatina, held annually on the last Wednesday of August where tens of thousands of people descend on the small Spanish city of Buñol, a municipality in the province of Valencia that is home to less than 10,000 year-round residents. People come here to throw red tomatoes at each other. A few years ago, over 50,000 participants flooded the city as to what's been known as the world's largest food fight on record. Shane Basden works for the London-based travel company called PP Travel, and for the past 10-plus years, he's been running packages for those who want to attend La Tomatina, he himself participating in more than a handful. Last year, his company transported over 1,000 people into the tomato fight, and is here to advise any future participants on how to effectively make the pilgrimage. Well, I mean, I, I've seen that historically there have been tens of thousands of people attending annually, and a few years ago there were upwards of 50,000 in that small town. That's right. Yeah, look, because, you know, dating way back, you know, back sort of 10 years ago, it, it was a free-for-all. People could just turn up on the day and, and enjoy the tomato fight, and, you know, it was a very local-run, localised little uh, event. Then, you know, people started finding out about it and making their way there and the numbers just exploded over you know once social media got involved and that sort of thing so about six years ago there was about 50,000 people turn up which was far too many for you know the small area that this is held in so how do they regulate that and what are the kind of pitfalls of having so many people descend on this town the, the actual tomato fight is held in a small tight little old cobblestone street so you know with sheer sided buildings either side like old apartments and shops and stuff um it, it can't expand outwards so yeah as the numbers expanded this you know it, it became quite dangerous so yes the banal city council realized that something had to be done so they worked out the magic figure of twenty thousand people can participate and that's the limit of tickets that are available now but basically all the, the tomatoes they all turn up in trucks so there's five to six big dump trucks that come down the street uh, one after another, blowing their horns and making lots of noise and uh, at, stop at certain points down along the street and uh, tip up and empty out a you know, large pile of tomatoes. But how does a fight like this begin? What are the origins of throwing nightshades at strangers focused on a fruit, scientifically speaking? There are several origin stories to La Tomatina, but according to the City Hall of Buñol, it had a giant start. See, many Spanish festivals include costume figures known as gigantes and cabizudos, or in English, giants and big heads. Giants represent traditional or historical figures, and the big heads represent some sort of villain that bandy about in oversized papier-mâché heads. On the last Wednesday of August 1945, there was a real-life clash between those two factions, and nearby market stands were pillaged for ammunitions, which, you guessed it, ended up being full of tomatoes. So talk to me what it's like right when it starts. I always find it quite amusing, the start of it. And then that first truck turns up and you see it coming down the street and you're looking up and you just can't wait for that truck to get to you. It's blowing its horn and there's lots of people in the truck and lots of, you know, yelling and singing and, and that going on. And it might stop and it might tipper goes up and it drops out some, you know, a big pile of tomato. It's that first one that rolls in front of everyone waiting. And, and it's like this poor little tomato is about to get jumped on by 
by about 100 people. But before you know it, you're kind of nearly somewhere between your ankle and knee deep in tomatoes. And it's just as the truck, you know, as those trucks slide past, gets past you, then everyone just goes nuts and just pelting people with tomatoes left, right and centre. It gets pretty full on in there. For a fight that only lasts an hour or so, the relentless pelting of even the ripest tomatoes seems a little intense. But it's all fun and games, right? So you have some strategy. So what, what is the psychology of how you approach La Tomatina? Well, you don't have to be afraid of tomatoes. That's one thing. Um, a lot of people turn up with goggles, thinking this is a great idea to protect their eyes and such, but it's not a very good idea because you spend the whole time trying to wipe them clean so you can see something. And, of course, people say, I'll just wipe it with my T-shirt or something. Well, <laughs> after a few minutes, there's not, not, there's not a clear spot left on your T-shirt to use. <laughs> um, we all go in with a, like a, a cap, a little peak cap on our head. You pull it down really tight over your eyes, keep your head down a little bit, and just sort of deflects it all away. Um the other strategy is there's no friends once you're in there. It's a good thing to get back at people, <laughs> friends for anything they've done. Turn on anybody with uh, handfuls of tomatoes. Uh, try to keep your mouth shut because I can tell you those tomatoes are not good for eating. Uh, they're kind of well past their use by date, so they definitely do not taste very nice. The scene afterwards is just as you'd envision. A thick tomato soup streams through the cobblestones until the hoses are turned on to wash away the pulp. This creates a small river that runs through the town. In turn, a chemical-free street cleaning from the citric acid of the tomatoes is the cleanest these roads will be for another year, until La Tomatina returns. So I contacted Craig Lehoulier, a chemist-turned-gardener and one of the foremost tomato activists in the United States. He is responsible for naming and popularizing many well-known tomatoes, such as Cherokee Purple. He has also written a book about tomatoes called Epic Tomatoes. Gosh, yeah, tomatoes seem to have found me through the years, and uh, I guess I've grown a few. So when and why did red become the corollary color of tomatoes? We are taught to eat with our eyes from a very early age. And because red was the predominant color, we go to grocery stores with, with our families when we're young. It's, been, it's taken a long time for traditional stores to decide that they can go beyond the red tomato and the green pepper. But the tomato, as far as we know, um, came into being thousands of years ago on the coast of South America, made its way to Central America after the Spanish conquest, unfortunately. Um, but fortunately, it made its way to Europe in the late 1500s. And it was most of the tomatoes. The first tomato was probably red. And there's no correlation really between color and flavor. Each tomato is like each one of us. It has its own personality. The genes in it will make it taste differently when grown in different areas in different seasons for people. So if it sounds like I'm saying there's not many specifics in gardening, that's one of the joys of it is each one of us gets to discover wonderful new things that we ourselves will probably be more fond of than, than other people. If you were to grow a variety of tomato for La Tomatina, um, what specs are you looking for? <laughs> so here, here's the thing. Are, are, you, are you looking to cause bodily injury? Are you looking to delight people with, with a gentle burst? And maybe if some of the, the stuff goes into their mouth, they go, hmm. So, you know, grocery store... Red tomatoes that have been bred for high yields and machine picking, those are your weapons. So I think it depends on what you go to the event for. <laughs> Revenge, uh, anger management, 
Um, the, the thing is, I would I would be in tears if people were flinging Cherokee purples and brandy wines around because I'd want to just grab those and go home, get some mozzarella and Parmesan and olive oil, and just start making plates for all my friends. While Craig had his pick of the garden to make a caprese salad, his daughter, Sarah, wasn't as emphatic about tomatoes as her father. During a travel abroad, she found herself in Spain during La Tomatina season. So I had to stop by, right? Let's call it serendipity. Well, I grew up not liking tomatoes, actually. I didn't like tomatoes until I was probably in college. Um, But yeah, growing up, we just always had gardens. He always had um, all of his tomatoes on the countertops in the kitchen to save seed, and we weren't allowed to touch or eat any of them until he saved seeds. So when I was older and I did eat tomatoes, I'd have to like call him on the phone and ask which tomatoes I could eat. And they all had, you know, writing on them and he would save the seed in the house and they would just stink like tomato fermented tomato seeds. Um, but it was really, it was really fun. Can you paint the scene at La Tomatina for me? What it's like walking into that town, participating and kind of the end of that tournament. Yeah, so we took the train from Valencia and, you know, didn't know where we were going really, but we followed the crowds. So it's cobblestone streets and, you know, the old timey houses. And we were just kind of herded into the the center of the town. Thousands of people. It was so packed. (laughs) And then the crowd started getting really rowdy. And I'm a tall person. I'm, you know, I could hold my own in the crowd but I was with two of my friends from college Ashwini and Sarah and they're shorter and smaller and Ashwini was getting really jostled around so I said well let's get out of here before it gets too crazy so we actually went to the edge of town and kind of looked out over the landscape for a little while and we missed the tomato throwing part Um, but our friend Sarah stayed in and she got pelted so hard with tomatoes she was like trapped up against a wall and there were guys just throwing tomatoes at her like full speed she was finding seeds in her hair for days it was so fun even though i didn't get hit with tomatoes i'm glad that i was able to get my friend out of there (laughs) well it might be a spectator sport for some given your dad's kind of cache of tomatoes which ones would you take to la tomatina oh for throwing i mean i would want to take a soft one obviously i think (laughs) but also it would be nice to be able to eat them i'd take a nice brandy wine I'd take some green ones, like the green when ripe, to be more confusing. So, oh, and I'd have to take the one that he named after me, which is Serendipity. I could take that one. Well, we've primarily talked about tomatoes up to this point, but my co-producer Jordan and I have found that there are many other fruits and vegetables that find their way into the food fight realm. We found Setsuban in Japan, a soybean-throwing festival that marks the beginning of spring through the act of mamemaki, or bean scattering. Roasted soybeans are thrown while chanting, in with fortune, out with evil, in order to prevent ogres from entering one's house. And by warding them off, good fortune will then come to one's home. Pro tip, according to Japanese tradition, if you eat the same number of beans as your age, you will enjoy a year of good health. There's the Black Pudding Throwing Championship held in Ramsbottom, Lancashire, the second Sunday of September. This tradition may have started during the 15th century during the War of the Roses. As legend has it, factions ran out of ammunition and began throwing food at each other. The legend was revived in the 1980s by residents as sport. Black puddings are flung at piles of Yorkshire puddings on a 20-foot-high plinth. 
competitors have three attempts to knock down as many Yorkshire puddings as possible. Then there's the chess-like Battle of the Oranges, held in the Piedmont region of Italy. The ancient route of Via Francigena, which in medieval times connected Canterbury to Rome, now leads through the city of Ivrea. There is an annual carnival held there the Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday before Ash Wednesday. The townspeople reenact their rebellion against a 12th century tyrant. Nine teams of orange cherry, or orange handlers, are on foot clashing with their despotic ruler, who rides a horse-drawn carriage. The object is apropos, to pummel their foe with citrus. And the citric acid stings all those cuts and scrapes. 6,000 pounds of oranges come from Sicily and Calabria, and they fly through the air like small suns. And when the battle is over, the real carnival begins. There's a border dispute in Germany, or was, reenacted once a year by civilians in regalia. Ever since the fall of the Berlin Wall, two neighborhoods, east and west, separated by a concrete barrier built across a river, now find themselves on a bridge, playfully fighting for water rights. Their ammunitions, rotten fruits and vegetables, aged with the same sourness these antagonists have for one another. Documented by filmmaker Andrew Friedman, he recounts his reporting from the middle of the vegetable battle. How do you pronounce that word that means vegetable battle? The battle is called Wasserschlacht, which is water battle. Then the alternate is Gemuschschlacht, which is vegetable in German. So it, it kind of goes goes either way because uh, vegetables are what is mainly used for battle, but the battle itself takes place on a bridge over a body of water and a lot of the water from the uh, river is used in the battle in conjunction with all the, the food. Well, let's talk about who the people or who the players of this actual battle are. So for, for the, the, the water vegetable fight, it takes place in Berlin um, annually ever since I believe it started um, in 98 was the first official uh, official food fight. And um, it takes place between Kreuzberg, which is which was formerly West Berlin and Friedrichshain, which is which was East Berlin. And, uh, you know, up until the Berlin Wall coming down, the wall itself literally divided these two neighborhoods down the line. And the only thing that connected them, which the wall also ran across, was the Oberbaumbrücke, which is a bridge that ran over the River Spree. And so what happened was once the wall came down, these two neighborhoods that were really at the ends of each world, they you know, they literally pushed up against the Berlin Wall, they now were in the middle of the city and kind of unified by the city of Berlin, by the government, by Germany. And essentially, these two neighborhoods did not get along with each other. And now that they were asked to kind of commingle, have the same local representation in government and all of these things, and kind of that's how the, the battle manifested itself out of this kind of, you know, you know, animosity between these two, these two neighborhoods that were split for so many years and now were kind of forced to, to come together. Then who partakes? Is it still the two kind of separated, you know, sects of that? of that city that are, are still embattled. So you really just think that these two neighborhoods that hate each other and 
um, it's really not that they don't, they don't want to be together, but they, they're doing this almost as like a political protest, but also a way to have fun with it. They're able to make this a, a political protest. So, the, so the, the city is forced to let them do this every year. So it's kind of a way to kind of give a middle finger to the government <laughs> to kind of say like, hey, we're going to do this. We're going to make a big mess. You guys have to clean it up. And, you know, and, and this is what you get for not listening to us, not letting us kind of be our own neighborhoods. Now, now, talk to me about some of the different vegetables or rotten meats that you've seen tossed and laying on the ground. Yeah, it's disgusting. I mean, it's it starts off, you know, very much where each side is on um, either, you know, either end of the bridge. And you kind of start rushing towards each other and, you know, everything gets fling. I mean, a lot of it is is harder things like vegetable. I mean, lettuce heads apples, oranges, and you just start getting pelted left and right. And then it's kind of once you're like one-on-one with each other, that's when you kind of take the the more mushy, you know, whatever, uh, you know, things that you have in your backpack that you save for, you know, more close-up battle to kind of just push in someone's face. And, <laughs> and, and then, you know, when you get hit with it, you're like, oh, that's rotten, you know, like meat or uh, you know, or eggs or cheese. It just, it just, you, it's, it's, it's a whole spectrum. That, that ends up all over you. So how do you win? Who, d- does anybody win in this battle? Well, every, if you ask either side, they contend only they have won every year. What's said to be the goal is that it's whoever side pushes the other across back to their own side first. That kind of invades the other, other neighborhood. And if from research, it said that Friedrichshain was the side that has always won. So Kreuzberg denies this if you if you when you interview any of them but from from any reporting and the, and the battle does get reported every year in in the papers um they say that friedrichstein is 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 the winners two teams separated by a division which no longer exists yet their denizens are unwilling to admit that distinction it's a boundary of the mind these interstate rivalries exist throughout the world but for what a pennant Or is it just hometown pride? Whatever the reasoning, it's probably time to ask, who's on my team? We'll be right back. You reach for the top olive oils and invest in the best pans. But in the kitchen, how well do you care for your greatest tool, your hands? When mine take a beating cooking and cleaning, which is often, I use Bag Bomb to work its wonders on my poor, distressed skin. Created 125 years ago on a Vermont dairy farm, their soaps smell great and clean hands without stripping moisture, and their fast-absorbing lotion means I can quickly get back to cooking. Treat your hardworking hands to Bag Bomb, every chef's best friend. Use code FOOD52 for 20% off your order on bagbomb.com. Good through 2024. You're listening to Burnt Toast, and this episode is brought to you by Panera Bread. They're on a mission to bring a little respect back to your breakfast. Panera knows mornings can be rushed, but that doesn't mean you have to settle for anything less than something good, clean, and handcrafted. Their new breakfast sandwich, the bacon, egg, and cheese on brioche, is made with care from ingredients like freshly baked brioche, an over-easy egg, real Vermont white cheddar, and thick-cut bacon. And when it's handcrafted, you get options, like how you want your eggs, if you want to add one of their new sauces, or even switch up the bread choice. Panera believes that food should taste good, no matter what meal you're eating. Breakfast is how you'll start your day. Why not start it on the right foot? Thanks again for tuning in to Burnt Toast.
In Sykeston, Missouri, Lambert's Cafe is known as the home of the throwed rolls. Waiters toss the barrage of buns to patrons at a rate of over 8,000 dinner rolls a day. This invention of necessity was due in part to a large space with too many tables and breadless diners sitting hungry, which led to this tradition. From shtick to sport, part of Lambert's success is also about accuracy and repetition, because even though it's a spectacle to see baked goods lofted throughout the large restaurant, people are there to eat. We gave them a call, but we were put on hold. They were probably too busy throwing rolls. Lambert's Cafe, the only home of throwed rolls. Remember, if it doesn't say Lambert's, it's not throwed rolls. I, like the waiters of Lambert's Cafe, needed to practice my throws. And as most men past their athletic prime, saw this as an opportunity to relive my glory days of playing ball. If I even had any at all. First up to the mound, I made a call to Joe Blanton, an imposing pitcher whose baseball career spanned the greater part of the past decade and a half, playing for teams like the Oakland Athletics, Philadelphia Phillies, Los Angeles Dodgers, and Washington Nationals. Though currently a free agent, he's been working out in Napa, where he's also been making wine on a small piece of land on Howe Mountain. His first vintage, named Sella, was first released this past November. So, if you were to find yourself in La Tomatina or at Battle of the Oranges, what pitch would you throw? So if I was going to hit somebody, it would definitely, um, it would have to be a fastball. If it's an open field, you're definitely going to go fastball and try to try to locate it the best and get the best velocity. But if there's um, maybe barriers in the way, uh, tomato might be a little tougher just because if it's a, if, especially if it's very ripe, um, you know, we've all held a tomato that's ripe. It's a little squishier. So if you you know, go to throw it too hard, it might uh, burst in your hand. So that one, one might take a little more, uh, a little more delicate. The orange, you know, has a little rougher texture, so I don't, I wouldn't see as much of a problem being able to throw it. And I feel like I could, you know, manipulate it if there were barriers and be able to throw a, you know, maybe a curveball if you will to drop it over top of one or um, throw it around something a little bit. Tomato would be a little more finicky. You'd have to hold it a little softer, and it would almost involve a more, uh, this is going way back baseball-wise, is kind of throwing the EFAS pitch. If you uh, take a lot more lobbing and harder to get a little extra velocity on it. So when I read on ESPN.com that there's a huge food fight erupted in some clubhouse, I know I'm going to point my finger at you. Yeah, that, uh, that would probably be me starting it. Blanton, like many pitchers, began his career as a starter and then found himself in the bullpen. Adam Odovino, a pitcher for the Colorado Rockies, has also made that transition. So let's make a call to our closer. With oranges, how would you best throw a ripe tomato or an orange? Uh, well, tomato is a little lighter than an orange, um, so I think I would more than likely. Well, I, is, the, is the is the object to not get hit yourself as well, or That's true, is it just yes. kind of a free for all? I think uh, in tomatoes, I would just, I would probably try to hold a bunch of them in my left hand and then continue to switch one to my right hand and just fire them off as quick as I could at everybody in sight. With the oranges, to make a real impact, you might have to get a running start because it's a little heavier object. Uh, but you could also inflict more damage. I see. I, I like how you've thought of this so much so that I think you might have already attended La Tomatina in Spain or Battle of Oranges. <laughs> I have not, but I've had I've had some food fights in my day. I throw uh, breaking pitches, so like curveballs, sliders, cutters, um, and then just fastballs. I don't throw changeups. I would probably stick with fastballs though in a food fight contest. 
I don't know where a breaking pitch would really come into play unless somebody was hiding like around a corner or something. See, again, I think you've really thought of this and I'm worried. You know, it, it's the Grapefruit League, and it's probably harder to throw grapefruits and oranges. Well, we're out here. We're the Cactus League in Arizona. Oh, that, that hurts even more. Yeah. <laughs> I think in a situation like this, you just want to fire as many as you can, as fast as you can. It seems endurance is key to a food fight. But what prepares you for the battle? Practice? A healthy diet? A good night's rest? Anything to avoid being battered before you even start. We asked Joe Janowski, the manager of the Sports Injury Prevention Program at the Hospital for Special Surgery, someone with more than 20 years of experience as a physical therapist and athletic trainer. So there couldn't be anyone better to teach us how to throw a tomato and not hurt ourselves than you. (laughs) Because growing up in Pennsylvania, there was a tomato throwing festival in what, Pittston? Yeah, Pittston, Pennsylvania is is a great little town. Uh, It's between Wilkes-Barre and Scranton in the northeast part of the state. Uh, a, a very diverse cultural background, but predominated uh, by uh, Italian immigrants uh, over the last uh, century or so. And so the, the town prides itself on its Italian heritage. And they, every summer, have a tomato festival as all of the tomatoes that are being grown uh, in the region are being harvested. And uh, as part of this festival, they have uh, a tomato fight. And I think it's about 100 or maybe 150 folks now are allowed in, in and these are coveted tickets and um you know they use the the tomatoes that are on their way out uh it's a wild scene and uh it, it's interesting to see people uh try to throw a tomato who don't you know throw things typically for a living or or you know have much proficiency in throwing things If you were a tomato throwing coach how would you teach somebody to do so? Well, uh, again, you know, it, it mirrors uh, sports and athletics uh, tremendously. Uh, you know, technique, of course, is always um, most important. Again, and um, so you know, very simple technique uh, of throwing, um, you know, can be broken down into, you know, certainly what your arm is doing, but how your arm reacts to what your body and your core and your lower half are are doing. So, the vast majority of throwing is is really you know, mastery and control of, of the middle of your body and the lower half of your body. The arm is, is sort of the tail end of it. So you're saying with two ACL injuries and a swimmer's elbow, I'm probably past my pitching prime. (laughs) We may need to correct your technique a little bit before we turn you loose again. The last thing I wanted was to find myself on the disabled list for throwing a tomato incorrectly. So I turned to Sam Miller, founder and CEO of Boston Biomotion, owner of Proteus a new strength training and physical assessment system that measures athletes while they train and provides instant, personalized insights to help them stay strong and balanced, avoid injury, and perform better. I knew he'd give me the metrics to make my pitch perfect. So the idea here is that you're going to go through this progression. We're going to show you this analysis at the end. But if we bumped up the resistance and the number of reps... Depending on how hard you want to work, you can get an intense workout. I still have to be able to throw tomatoes. You do. You're going to be fine. You're going to be fine. I plugged into the Proteus with the resistance bumped up and just started throwing things. Beautiful. Oranges, tomatoes, you name it. I threw until I hit the proverbial wall. It started to feel like work pretty quickly after the fifth tomato, maybe. 
which made me anxious for the day I might actually be called in the pitch during a food fight. We call up Dr. Nicole Detling, a CMPC, or Certified Mental Performance Consultant, with a PhD in exercise and sports science, with an emphasis on sports psychology. She's a pro at understanding not just performance from a physical perspective, but also from a mental one. At where trying to recreate La Tomatina, tens of thousands of people descend on this small town and throw tomatoes at each other. <laughs> Should I be preparing every day for this for that one moment? Should I be practicing throwing tomatoes both physically and mentally? Heck yeah, why not? <laughs> it's fun, first of all, right? Um, but yeah, you can definitely prepare throwing physically and mentally. You feel like you're ready for it. You have a go-to. You have a strategy. But what questions would you ask me or what would you make me – I want to talk more mental than physical. What would you make me think about or visualize um, – to prepare leading up to and then in that moment. So what are your personal expectations? What would be a realistic yet a little bit challenging expectation for you that would kind of motivate you to prepare for it? Of course, I want to hit someone with a tomato, but you want to hit them in a way that it, you know, it strikes them exactly where you're aiming and makes that perfect splatter, that sound that you expect. And then hopefully, again, not get pummeled by tomatoes in the process. Right. Okay. So it's offensive and defensive strategy kind of combined at the same time, right? So then I would encourage you to imagine what that throw is going to be like, um, to see the tomato hitting, to see it splattering, to hear the sound, all of those things And on one hand. And then on the other hand, also, what is your avoidance strategy to not get hit? You are put in this square with thousands of other people. I think there is no, <laughs> I think there is no way to get away from any of the mayhem. Then maybe it would be a good idea for you to accept the fact you're going to get pummeled with tomatoes. And is it more fun for you to experience that as well as hitting other people? So maybe it's hitting others more times than you get hit. Um, but maybe you learn how, maybe you need to learn how to take a hit. <laughs> <laughs> if you have the idea of accepting the fact that you're going to get hit then you're free to go about and throw as many tomatoes as you want. It's the samurai warrior mentality. And I would also encourage you to practice your throwing skills and maybe have somebody tie you up, you know, like the old Anaheim <laughs> Ducks, the Mighty Ducks movie, and tie you up and you just got to take the hits, man. They pummel you with tomatoes and you get what it feels like, you experience it, you understand it, then you're not afraid of it. They say that much of sports psychology is visualization. Seeing the ball, being the ball, or in this case, a tomato. I asked Jordan, my co-producer, now with a better grasp of strength and stratagem on our team, if she thought we'd survive a food fight. Jordan, do you think we're ready for La Tomatina? I'm as ready as I'll ever be. I grew up in a family that was pretty civilized around the dinner table. But there's this one meal that I remember, and we completely forgot our table manners. One singular soggy green bean flicked through the air, landing splat on my mother's neck, and it stuck there like a leech. And it proved to me that we didn't have to take food too seriously. But a green bean, not a tomato? It was more a point about the preparation of the green beans than an all-out brawl. Well, nostalgia can be powerful. For me, just something about those Three Stooges pies. And combined with the allure of competition, it's no wonder we're quick to pick up a tomato and join in. The drive to compete is rooted in our biology, 
Our lifestyles are very different from when our ancestors were hunters, gatherers. They had to fight for their food. It's only natural that now we fight with it. Let's just hope that tomatoes never attack us. Thank you to Thomas Hughes for providing us with his ballpark rendition of the Attack of the Killer Tomatoes theme song. Thank you to Food52 for fighting the good fight and indulging me with my first food fight for this episode. Thanks to my wonderful co-producer Jordan Werner and Nick Rad and Michael Comate at HeadGum for making us sound like pros. Music by the talented Joshua Rural Dobson. Here's to all our food fighting interviewees and of course to ripe tomatoes everywhere. Stay tuned for episode two of Food 52's Burnt Toast, all about the world of maple. Tapping soon.